This is a Federal News Network podcast. The James Webb Space Telescope has been sending back mind-bending data since its launch last year. But a few years ago, the project was mired in trouble, more than a decade late and billions of dollars over budget. My next guest came in and got it back on track. He's the James Webb Program Director and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals Program. Greg Robinson joins me now. Mr. Robinson, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom. I'm glad to be here, and I appreciate you uh, inviting me for this interview. And you are a longtime employee of NASA, so this sounds like just the latest in a series of challenges they like to throw at you. Uh, yes. So I've been around a long time, uh, more than 30 years, and I came on Webb four years ago. And I've worked many what we call spaceflight missions, including all of the space shuttle missions after the Columbia accident. Wow. We'll wait for your book to come out. But in the meantime, let's talk about what happened in 2018 when you got assigned to the James Webb. What did you find, first of all, and how did you devise a plan to go about getting it right? I'll start off saying that the development team is incredibly, incredibly smart, really smart individuals and team. So I didn't have to worry about doing any hardcore analysis or engineering or anything like that. That was already in place. A couple of areas certainly had to lay out the program to build confidence in our stakeholders that we could get it done. What was the budget needed? What was the schedule? What was the plan to make sure that happened? So that included looking at an independent review team recommendations and weaving those into how we actually worked. And so a couple of areas of high interest, one was to mitigate human errors. So uh, small errors on web meant many months and, and, and many millions of dollars, in some cases, hundreds of millions. So we had to really mitigate uh, human errors. And some of that is what I call adding uh, fresh eyes, have someone else look at your product, particularly critical areas, occasionally bring in a small review team to review something in particular. So we did a lot of that, and I think it made a, a huge difference. The other one was transparency, transparency from the project up through headquarters to the administrative suite and, of course, the White House and Congress. And so I reinstated the quarterly meetings with Congress, with all the four committees and with Office of Management and Budget. So sometimes I took them bad news. And as I took good news and bad news, and they rarely questioned whether I was transparent or not, then I think they made for a happy marriage. We got all the support we needed, and that put us on our way. And with respect to the human errors and adding the fresh eyes, I guess it sounds like you were following one of the basic quality control principles, and that is the earlier you detect an error, the less expensive and faster it is to fix, so that if you take a couple of extra days or weeks now, you might save months and millions later on. Is that a fair way to put it? That's absolutely correct. So there are a couple of types of issues you have. One is just the technical challenges. Sometimes the physics just gets you, right? The engineering design just gets you. And that's the complexity of it. The team was fairly good at that, uh, a few exceptions. The other ones were the lack of focus that caused the error. These were not hard engineering type errors. So we definitely had to eliminate those. Those were the easiest to eliminate because the other ones are just physics. They get you. But those became fewer and fewer as we went further. We are speaking with Greg Robinson, Program Director for the James Webb Space Telescope at NASA. And what was the morale like of that staff, which you described as very smart, but they were making errors, and you said there's a lack of focus. So it sounds like maybe as it dragged on, people were getting bored with it or, or what? So I'll start off saying the human errors, what I would call human-induced errors, there weren't a lot of them and they weren't that often, but the impacts were huge when they happened. So uh, that's the first thing. 
2018, the morale was not great, especially when we had the independent review team come in and look at what was going on. No one wants to be reviewed <laughs> independently. It's just a fact of life. So it created a little contention in the environment. Um, one of my challenges was really to embrace those recommendations and all of them were very, very good. Some we did not implement exactly, but tried to implement what they were trying to get at the intent. So I tried to fold those recommendations into the way we actually work day to day. So let's not do a whole lot different, but let's get better and let's make some small changes in some areas where we're very good, but where we need to get a little bit better. So as I made that change to not fight the recommendations. I think that helped us move along, uh, reducing the contention in the system. What in your past assignments at NASA do you feel gave you the equipment to deal with this particular issue? Because it was getting a lot of publicity and a lot of impatience, as you say, especially from the appropriators. As I mentioned before, I've worked uh, many spaceflight missions on the science side, a lot of satellite missions and heliophysics and earth science and astrophysics and a little bit of planetary on the Mars side. I've touched a lot of missions. I've seen uh, numerous developments. After a while, uh, as you hear in, in the sports world, they said the game slows down. The pitch is not as fast as it used to be as I get a little more comfortable and a little more experienced. So it, it slows down uh, with those experiences. So you can kind of see things. You know what to try to avoid. It certainly doesn't make you perfect. So those experiences really helped a lot. And then there's an art side. Uh, over the years with good training, good mentors, very good development programs that helped shape some of the art side of working with organizations, building teams, leading teams, et cetera. So you came into this project with some credibility behind you. At least that's what they told me. Uh, I think I had a little bit. So yeah, I had a lot of experience. I've been the deputy director of the Glenn Research Center of 3,200 employees with many different types of missions from space flight to aeronautics to research and technology development. I've dealt with the industrial base, many of the companies for many, many years in different forms. So the game just slowed down for me. Got it. And on the day of the launch late last year, what was it like? Because knowing how many billions of dollars in a couple of decades went into building this single copy of this instrument, and you only had one chance to get it into space correctly. What was that like? Normally, I have uh, butterflies get into the launch count. Uh, I must say they were less this time than ever. Uh, I'm not sure why, but I had a lot of confidence in the team, what they had accomplished, and the things we had put in place over the last four years uh, gave me high confidence. I had high confidence in the rocket, the Ariane 5. So wasn't really a concern. I, I just wanted to see some fire and smoke. Got it. And well, we saw that. And now with these images coming back, what's your role in the uh, James Webb now that it's up and operational and we're seeing these great visualizations? So we're in the six-month commissioning phase right now, six months after launch. You know, we did all the deployments back in January. We've focused and aligned the mirror. And now we're in what we call the instrument, the science instrument commissioning phase for the next uh, couple of months or so. We have about two months left before we actually get into science operations mode. But we've already gotten back some amazing images of some really bright stars, uh, lots of galaxies. Uh, so we know the telescope is working, I would say, almost perfectly, maybe perfectly, and, and, and actually beyond what we expected. So I'm looking forward to the next couple of months, uh, getting it ready so we can release some of these first science images to the world. And what will you do next? Any plans? Uh, a couple of cartwheels, if, if I still can. 
uh, <laughs> and um, and I'm still still trying to decide what that is. Craig Robinson is the program director for the James Webb Space Telescope at NASA and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate it. And again, thanks for having me. And go Webb. We'll post this interview along with all of our Sammy's interviews at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Launch the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? 
I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience? And to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.